This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Brave New Films, The Young Turks, On the Media, The Majority Report, The David Pakman Show, The Media Matters Minute, Counterspin, Mumi Abu-Jamal, and Truth Dig Radio. And a refresher on the old adage, when in doubt... Don't send children to violence-ravaged countries where they may very likely be raped or murdered. The border surge. Border surge. Border surge. Border surge. Border surge. surge. Last year, the government spent $18 billion on border and immigration enforcement, more than the budget of every other federal agency combined. The militarization of the U.S. border has added thousands of Border Patrol agents, deployed manned aircraft and drones, established military-style bases and surveillance towers, and built hundreds of miles of border fencing for a total cost of $90 billion. At a cost of about $4 million per mile, Customs and Border Protection had spent almost $3 billion building a fence along the border. Add to that a $50 billion estimated maintenance cost, which includes paying for screw-ups, like the $21 million fence in Lukeville, Arizona. It collapsed after causing major flooding. The repair cost was $24 million. Customs and Border Protection has had three failed attempts at building a virtual fence using super expensive, state-of-the-art technologies like thermal cameras and sensors. SBINet was a multi-billion dollar effort led by Boeing to build an allegedly all-seeing, impenetrable virtual frontier. Seven years and a billion dollars later, SBINet only covers 2.5% of the border, a mere 53 miles. The Department of Homeland Security canceled the project in 2011 because of delays and technological failures, mainly that sensors had trouble distinguishing humans from cattle. In the border town of Ajo, Arizona, Customs and Border Protection has spent nearly $13 million building just 21 homes for Border Patrol agents. The agents did not feel any of the 150 available homes in Ajo met their standards. CBP plans on building an additional 25 homes here in Ajo. No word yet on a location or financial details surrounding that project. Customs and Border Protection spent $8.4 million in 2008 to sponsor a NASCAR driver as part of a marketing effort to recruit more guards. But they forgot to mention they were hiring in the ad. Needless to say, the agency failed to meet its goal and hired about the same amount as the previous year, when they did not spend $8.4 million on a race car. Congress spent more than $240 million to establish Customs and Border Protection's drone program. The drones were underused, and even still, three new ones were acquired. The agency plans to have 24 drones in flight by 2016.
John Boehner's lawsuit against Barack Obama for executive orders is not deterring him from possibly taking executive action on the issue of comprehensive immigration reform. Now, recently, uh, he actually spoke to some of his advisors to figure out what he can do to bypass the Congress and pass some sort of common sense immigration reform. Now, let me give you the details. Uh, he has asked Homeland Security uh, Secretary Jay Johnson and Attorney General Eric Holder for recommendations by the end of the summer on the types of executive actions he could take to address some of the aims of a comprehensive bipartisan bill that passed the Senate last year. Among the steps he could consider would be to focus deportations on people with serious criminal records, something the administration has already tried to do with mixed results. Now, if you guys can remember, exactly a year ago, uh, the Senate did pass a bipartisan bill that would lead to comprehensive immigration reform. It would give the Republicans what they want in, in the sense of providing more funding to secure our borders, and it would also create a 13-year plan for undocumented immigrants that are already here and are not criminals. They're productive members of society. Unfortunately, the House refused to, uh, to pass that legislation. Yeah, and of course, now Boehner turns around and says, oh, it's all Obama's fault. Wait, you guys are the ones that blocked it. It was already bipartisan in the Senate. The president's ready to sign it. They said, no, no, no. He made us block it by not giving us everything we wanted in the bill. I know. Really and by the way, what did you want in the bill? Uh, we wanted uh, only big walls and no pathway to citizenship. In other words, we didn't really want immigration reform. We just wanted a giant wall so the wildlings couldn't cross the border. Yeah. Right? That's their vision of it, right? So who would agree to that? And if we gave them that... Would that really be immigration reform? Would Im uh, people who are fighting for immigration reform be like, oh, thank God, a larger wall. That's what we really needed, right? So, no, of course you're blocking it. So President Obama has to go around you in every way that he can. He has to take every legal executive action that he can. Look, I'm not in favor of abusing executive authority. Just check my record, what, either under Bush or Obama. But in this case, he hasn't done anything to abuse. It's his job to execute the laws, and he has discretion uh, on how to execute those laws. So far, everything he's done is perfectly fine. I don't know what he's got next. You have to evaluate it case by case. And by the way, he pulled in a lot of these activists, including, by the way, business groups that are in favor of reform. Exactly. Right? And then he said, oh, I have, I have a new plan. I'm going to spend $2 billion uh, to uh, make sure we kick out more of the kids that came in recently across the border. The response was not positive yeah. because they're like, wait, that's more Republican than the Republicans. Like, why do you? So, you want to spend extra money kicking people out? Mm -hmm. okay, look, that's a, there's a real issue about kids at the border. And, and I understand I, that, we yeah. understand that. And there's good ways of dealing with it. But your big, bold reform plan is to go further right? I know. It's frustrating. It is, right? it is frustrating. And what drives me crazy is, okay, so here's the bigger picture, which is comprehensive immigration reform, something we should be focusing on, especially when you consider that there are 11 million people here and they're undocumented. Um, but at the same time, I mean, look at how Congress failed to pass something like the Federal DREAM Act that would ensure that people who were children, who were smuggled into the country when they were children, would have a... a pathway to citizenship as long as they're productive members of society, as long as they're going to college here, or if they've uh, entered the military, if they're helping society in some way, there would be a pathway of citizenship for them. And by the way, they were smuggled into the country when they were children and they didn't have a choice. Congress refused to pass that. So if they can't focus on something that specific and they can't pass something that specific, how are we going to have any hope for them when it comes to comprehensive immigration reform? So, look, luckily, no one's buying this. If you go to Latinos today, are they frustrated? 
frustrated with President Obama? Absolutely. Do they have good reason to be frustrated? Well, yes and no. Like, so Republicans have blocked him all the way. He would have passed those reforms if it were up to him. That's true. Now, it's not always true, but it is true in this case. Uh, but at the same time, they say, look, you did the record amount of deportations. And it's, you could have gone the other way. You know, you, you have all this authority uh, as the head of the executive branch. And now President Obama, to be fair to him, is in some cases trying to go the other way. Basically, he said, I'm not going to kick out the kids mm -hmm. on an earlier executive action. Right. Now, unfortunately, he's doubling down on kicking out the kids of the newly arrived. Okay, So it's, it's a, a complicated mess. On the other hand... You think Latinos are sitting around going, oh, the Republicans got our back? Hell no. This, I mean, look, what's amazing is that eight years ago, that was actually an open question. Like a lot of Latinos, about 43% of Latinos voted for George W. Bush. Okay, And now, I, I think the Republicans, as usual, have thrown themselves off a cliff. Mm -hmm. Right Now, if you go to ask for Latinos, are the Republicans on your side, you're going to get a good belly laugh. Like, I don't think... I mean, only a tiny percentage believe that anymore. And you can see because over 70% voted for Obama in 2012. And that number is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So the Republicans have basically like said, yeah, we'll show you Democrats. You see that, Cliff? We'll go off first. You're not going to win national elections without any Latino votes. So go for it. This week, President Obama has been in Texas to promote his request for $3.7 billion from Congress for emergency funds to address the border crisis. His visit to Texas came after two weeks of overheated reporting about a surge in unaccompanied minors who are crossing the border illegally. A gigantic, unprecedented surge of minors, most without parents or guardians, crossing our southern border on their own by the thousands. The sheer number of unaccompanied children. Barely older than toddlers. A massive surge of illegal immigrants is underway right now, and we do mean massive. This is unprecedented. Leaked pictures show hundreds, hundreds upon hundreds of children packed like sardines into detention centers. This is serious, and it is unprecedented, but it's not quite as described. Bob Ortega is a senior reporter for the Arizona Republic. Bob, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Glad to be with you. So the way the media has been presenting this, you'd think that there's a tidal wave of five-year-olds washing up on our shores. Is that what's happening? No, not really. A lot of the unaccompanied minors who are coming across are teenagers, 14, 15, 16, 17. They are, in fact, many of them traveling alone. But most of the younger children that we're seeing are coming across with family or in some cases being brought across by coyotes. Coyotes being those who ferry people illegally for lots of cash. Yes, exactly. And those who are crossing the border unaccompanied generally are not traveling the entire distance from Central America to the border unaccompanied. In most cases, they are traveling with an adult. So the numbers issue, actual immigration statistics suggest that immigration's actually coming down, right? Well, if you compare the numbers of migrants who have been apprehended by the Border Patrol in the last year or so to the numbers from, say, the mid-2000s, when more than a million a year were being apprehended, they're down considerably. 
we're looking at probably a slightly larger number this year, but not significantly. It's still going to be less than half of the numbers that we were seeing, say, six, seven years ago. But the numbers of kids is going up. What's happening is that the number of unaccompanied children from Central America is going up. We're not seeing any increase in children or in migrants in general from Mexico. We are seeing an increase in migrants from three countries in Central America, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. That increase actually started about three or four years ago. What we're seeing now is that that wave has finally reached a point at which people have begun to notice. So why especially from those countries? Now, you have to keep in mind that all three of these countries already have had very high murder rates. The murder rates in those countries have continued to rise, and the change there has been that to an increasing extent, the criminal gangs that are responsible for a large proportion of those murders have been targeting children and families. And that is what is really driving, I would say, two-thirds of the migrants that we're seeing crossing the border now from those countries. Targeting children, why? These Gangs operate extortion rackets. Lately, they've begun to extort families, demanding money and threatening to hurt children if they don't get it. They also recruit children to act for them in a variety of ways. And if families refuse to cooperate, then they can pay a terribly heavy price. In San Pedro Sula, for example, which is the second largest city in Honduras, just last month, in one day, four children in one neighborhood were murdered, the youngest of them five years old, murdered and their bodies cut into pieces and then dumped along the roads in that neighborhood because their families had refused to let them work for the gangs. One narrative emerging from the Republican side of Capitol Hill is that this uptick in child migrants is directly related to President Obama's proposed immigration reforms. Here's House Speaker John Boehner on Thursday, for example. Along our southern border, uh, we've got a true uh, humanitarian crisis underway with children caught in the middle. Unfortunately, it's a crisis of the president's own making. His actions gave false hope to children and their families. Uh, if they entered the country illegally, they would be allowed to stay. So how much can we say that this surge is related to policy? Well, it isn't really, not at all. Not at all? Not at all. There's no evidence whatsoever to indicate that any of this has to do with immigration policy, with the promise of immigration reform, or with actions such as the DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. The DREAM Act. The DREAM Act, right. What's really clear is that the children are fleeing gang violence for the most part. These children are not only fleeing to the U.S., many of them are also seeking asylum in neighboring countries such as Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Panama, Mexico. Also, many of these children have been interviewed by a variety of people. I spoke with a woman who's been in El Salvador since January and has interviewed more than 400 migrant children. And these are all children who had been deported back to El Salvador. Of the 400 she spoke with, one, one brought up the possibility of immigration reform as having been something that had even occurred to them. But do we have any way of knowing how many of the kids who wind up in Texas are there because of economic opportunity or because they're fleeing for their lives? Well, we do have some idea, yeah. The UN Human Rights Commission has done some studies themselves. This woman that I just mentioned, Elizabeth Kennedy, the Fulbright Scholar, who's also talked to a lot of these kids, and we've talked with a number of them. The information all seems to indicate that probably in about a third of the cases, especially when we're talking about older teens, 
they are in fact coming for economic reasons. So that's still a factor. It's just that I would say in about two-thirds of the cases, it's really fleeing from violence that is the determining motivation. Isn't the promise of immigration reform still a motivator? There have been reports of rumors of free passes in Central America that are encouraging people to send their children to the U.S. Here's a clip from Secretary of Homeland Security Jay Johnson in a hearing on Capitol Hill. The smuggling organizations are creating a misinformation campaign that there's a permisos or free pass. I've even heard that you have to get here by May 2014 in order to get your free pass. So, you were recently in Honduras and El Salvador, where a lot of these miners are coming from. What did you see while you were there? Well, it's not the case that there is any kind of misinformation campaign in the media in these countries. In fact, I would say the media outlets have actually been quite responsible in describing very accurately the fact that there is no permiso or free pass. In fact, in an article you wrote, you quote a front-page headline of La Prensa Gráfica, one of the largest papers in El Salvador, that said, the U.S. will not give asylum to migrant children. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, very straightforward, and that has been the tone of the reporting down there. Now, separately, one of our reporters from the Arizona Republic also spent a week in Reynosa, Mexico, talking to migrant children and families that were waiting to cross into the U.S., and it's clear that some of them have, in fact, heard these rumors from smugglers. So there is some truth to what Johnson was saying, but to be clear, that is not what is motivating people to flee. This is a story they're hearing once they're already on the way, once they're in Mexico approaching the border. What about the coverage that you've seen from your spot at the border bothers you the most? What's the narrative that just strikes you as, uh, as just unconscionably wrong? Well, one of the things that really surprises me, I would say, is the reluctance to look at the facts on the ground in those countries. We're seeing a very aggressive push to say that we need to send as many of these kids back as quickly as we can. And one of the people that I spoke with when I was down in El Salvador, I think, put it best, saying that if we act too quickly, we may be sending some of these children to their deaths. And so I think that it's really incumbent on the immigration authorities and on the politicians who are involving themselves in this issue to make sure that we tread carefully when it comes to considering how many of these children actually face the risk of death if they are returned to their homes. I was very intrigued the other day to see coverage of a protest in Murrieta, California, uh, a group of people who had come out to protest against uh, several busloads of children who were being brought into their community for processing. And one of the women was holding a sign that said, not our children, not our problem. Mm. And to me, the notion that I think is important to keep in mind is these are children. And so I think it is our problem. Got to rescue your children. Somebody. Got to rescue your children. Somebody. Got to give one helping hand. Senator John uh, Cornyn, Republican. And the odious Democrat, Representative Henry Cuellar. Cuellar. Wait, it's two L's, buddy. Yeah. 
They are introducing legislation today to speed up the deportations of thousands of these unaccompanied children from Central America. As you know, a 2002 and then reauthorized 2008 law says that if you are an unaccompanied minor from a country that is not contiguous to the United States, you have the right to go through an asylum uh, process which involves uh, seeing a judge, uh, getting counseling, etc., etc. Under this uh, new plan, unaccompanied minors from any country would uh, would be able to have an immigration court hearing within seven days of their processing, and an immigration judge would be required to rule within three days on whether the child be allowed to stay or be deported. So, of course, this is just basically a rubber stamp situation. The bill authorizes 40 new immigration judges uh, to help process the cases. Understand the estimate is that we need double the near 300 judges we have now to deal with uh, the thousands of cases that um, uh, of backlog that we have. Uh, so this is just more putting pressure on these judges to basically just say, you're deported. In a blow to irony, the lawmakers are calling the bill the Humane Act, which is an acronym for Helping Unaccompanied Minors and Alleviating National Emergency. You know, there, I've said repeatedly that this is a refugee crisis. If you want, this is a refugee emergency. But this is not a national emergency. There is nothing that is impacting the nation right now. The emergency is that you have these kids ranging in age from toddler to the teens living in warehouses, being terrified by rampant uh, nativists in this country. It is their crisis and it is their emergency. And our inability to absorb them is what is creating this uh, crisis. But the idea that this is a national emergency is pathetic. It's absurd. I mean... This really should be just a a national source of shame. It is really just reprehensible. Shame, boatloads of shame, day after day, more of the same. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently-owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra 
but 7-8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Shame, boatloads of shame, day after day, more of the same. Sarah Palin, on the other hand, is calling for the impeachment of the president over what's going on at the border. Unfortunately, President Obama is just abiding by a law that was passed by George W. Bush when he was president. Yet another instance of laughable, silly, nonsensical hypocrisy and double standards from the American right. Sarah Palin wrote what's being called, this is so, so stupid, an exclusive article for Breitbart.com. Sarah Palin wrote an exclusive article for Breitbart.com. Uh, Sarah Palin wrote that the president needs to be removed from office via impeachment because of the crisis at the border involving tens of thousands of refugees, most of them children, trying to escape violent conditions in Central America. Of course, in typical Sarah Palin fashion, she tries to appeal only to emotion and is unable to actually say what law is President Obama breaking? In her call for impeachment, Sarah Palin writes, if you believe she wrote this herself, enough is enough of the years of abuse from this president. His unsecured border crisis is the last straw that makes the battered wife say no mas. President Obama's rewarding of lawlessness, including his own, is the foundational problem here. It's not going to get better. And in fact, irreparable harm can be done in this lame duck term as he continues to make up his own laws as he goes along and, mark my words, will next meddle in the U.S. court system with appointments that will forever change the basic interpretation of our Constitution's role in protecting our rights. And then she says, it is time to impeach. And on behalf of American workers and legal immigrants of all background, backgrounds, we should vehemently oppose any politician on the left or right who would hesitate in voting for articles of impeachment. If you want to call for the president's impeachment, you have to actually point to the law the president has broken. The reason we have this surge in immigrant children from Central America that need to be processed and allowed to stay in the country is because of a law that was passed with bipartisan support under Republican President George W. Bush in 2008. This is called the William Wilberforce Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act of 2008, and it created these guidelines where children who cross the border alone, fleeing one of a number of countries on the list, Mexico and Canada are not on that list, it is Central American countries, must be allowed to stay with family members if they already have family in the U.S. or placed in foster care. This law was completely uncontroversial when it passed under the Republican administration of George W. Bush. This is yet another Benghazi-esque fake scandal double standard. No one cared about the 12 Benghazis under Bush, and people flip out when there is one under Obama that he, of course, had nothing to do with. No one cared about this law when President George W. Bush signed it into law, and now that President Obama is abiding by George W. Bush's law, it is Obama's crisis, transparent hypocrisy, barely being mentioned by corporate media. No, of course not. Uh, that doesn't make for good television. 
But what does make for good television is Sarah Palin desperately trying to remain relevant. <laughs> yeah, she is still trying. And I, I saw a new poll that says two-thirds to three-quarters of Democrats want Sarah Palin to go away, but almost half of Republicans want Sarah Palin to go away. In spite of all of the ridiculous and, and inherently hypocritical positions that Republicans hold, almost half of them realize Sarah Palin should go away and is not good for their party. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Chance Seals. At least seven Fox News figures have claimed a surge of National Guard troops to the border would resolve border security issues. Fox News host Anna Koyman said the situation, quote, needs the National Guard on the ground to block the border to stop this problem. And on the O'Reilly factor, host Bill O'Reilly also said Obama should, quote, move the National Guard down there and deny them entry. But when Texas Governor Rick Perry repeated that claim on Fox News Sunday, guest host Britt Hume pushed back. I guess that that's the message, Governor. What, what I don't quite understand is how it is that with the law being the way it is, uh, the presence of more uh, more troops or forces on the border who are not legally able to apprehend these uh, these uh, these immigrants, these these border crossers. Uh, is going to change anything without the law being changed first. While Hume's colleagues had suggested a surge of National Guard's troops are the answer, the truth is that under current law, National Guardsmen cannot apprehend people at the border or turn them away. I want to talk more. We're going to have a guest on uh, about what's the, the, this humanitarian crisis that is uh, happening with these children. But um, it, there's an amazing story in the New York Times today uh, where a reporter has actually gone down to, I believe she went down to El Salvador, and I believe it was a she. Yes, Sonia Nazario. And uh, the piece, uh, the children of the drug wars, the piece really makes it clear why what is happening with these children is not an immigration crisis. It is a refugee or humanitarian crisis. Things have just gotten horrible in Central America. I mean, just devastatingly violent for children in particular. And the idea that the president would speed up the process to deport these children simply because there's some political, he sees some political efficacy in terms of immigration is reprehensible. It's reprehensible. Studies show anywhere between 40 and 60 percent of these children would qualify for refugee status if if the process works as it's supposed to be. There is something like a 275,000 case backlog to be handled by less than 300 immigration judges. You do the math here. We should also be providing counsel to all of these children, legal counsel, because you have a four times more of a chance of getting asylum status if you're represented by a lawyer for obvious reasons. For obvious reasons. You have children fearing for their lives. Even the, the, the process, and, and, and I would imagine from the perspective of these children, 
the backlogs in hearing their cases, if they have to stay in so-called detention centers or in foster care or anything for a year or a year and a half, as opposed to heading back to El Salvador or Honduras, I am sure it is there. It is almost a dream come true when you hear the level of violence that these kids are subjected to, the fear that they are living in. You begin to understand why they have uh, made this journey and why seeing immigration officers or border patrol officers uh, that they willingly handed themselves over to uh, must have been a relief. It, it really is stunning. Uh, maybe I'll read from this uh, piece in the, uh, the better half. But this is a humanitarian crisis, and the president should go down to the border and should engage in a photo op. And it should be with these children. And he should sit there with a translator and have a, a, some of these children tell them what they are dealing with so that the rest of the country can absorb this. And then make these thugs, like we saw out in front of that bus in Marietta, justify themselves. I saw a, a, a report also from uh, the UN refugee, I'm not sure exactly what agency it is, and they interviewed 400 uh, some odd children. And apparently out of that, literally 1%, four of them, and I guess that's, uh, yeah, 1%, said that they were coming because they um, they understood the immigration laws in this country would allow them to stay. The rest were talking about the tremendous amount of violence that they were dealing with. Running through the forest and I'm running through the woods Running my whole life, running like I should Running for survival, running from the rifle Running for the Bible, blood libels and false idols Craziness inside me, afraid to pick through the bushes and the sea It's the great escape. Got to sneak away. When they look away, we'll just fade away. The so-called border crisis that has seen tens of thousands of children fleeing Central America for the U.S. has, for the press, become quite the political story, including a contest over who is calling for the kids to be sent back sooner. President Obama, Hillary Clinton, or the Republican leadership. So the coverage includes tons of politics, but next to nothing about the reasons the children are fleeing from Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Sure, there are pieces that explain that those countries are suffering from massive violence and soaring homicide rates, but why is that? There are experts who could point out that the violence in those three countries is in no small part a legacy of the Reagan-backed wars and death squad rampages of the 1980s. 
experts like Laura Carlson, who joined Counterspin a few weeks ago to point out that Honduras, which has sent the largest number of child refugees north, was not only the victim of bloody U.S.-backed policies in the 1980s, but was also victimized in a U.S.-backed coup in 2009. That coup removed a popular president and installed a regime that has seen Honduras' sky-high homicide rate turn astronomical. It is now the highest in the hemisphere. By contrast, Nicaragua, which has followed a very different political trajectory since the 1980s, has a homicide rate one-eighth that of Honduras and about a fourth the size of either Guatemala's or El Salvador's. Masses of Nicaraguan children are not seeking to migrate to the U.S., Are U.S. journalists unaware of the real roots of today's violence? Or are they ignoring it because it confers moral responsibility on the U.S.? And that discussion would spoil a swell debate about just how quickly the kids should be returned to their dangerous homelands. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. You're gonna keep my soul, it was yours to have long ago. When children are the enemy. I've been watching for days now as media reports display the growing hatreds at the arrival of Central American children across the Mexican border. American voices crackle with bile as they begin the drumbeat for their immediate deportation. Vile names are called against them and they are described as invaders, sick and dirty. In truth, they are refugees from want and war, almost all the result of U.S. interventions in Central America in support of murderous military regimes and the mindless drug war. These are the grandchildren of NAFTA, the economic policy which leached wealth from Mexico and its neighbors. That said, this antipathy shown towards children is deeply disturbing. It reminds me of the era of the Second World War, when a bill was submitted in Congress to allow the entry of thousands of Jewish children. The Wagner-Rogers bill would have saved 20,000 kids living in Germany. But President FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, opposed it, and the bill died. Actually, many U.S. elites opposed it, including Roosevelt's cousin, Laura Delano Hauteling. She was the wife of the U.S. Immigration Commissioner, who argued 20,000 charming children would all too soon grow into 20,000 ugly adults. Such crude racism portrays the ugliness of Americans, and the day will come when we will look back at how these children are treated today, and we will not feel pride. This frenzy, this 
political and social fear whipped up by petty, ambitious politicians will yet pass. But left behind will be our shame at how a nation that claims so much greatness can be so small and so cruel. From imprisoned nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Yesterday, I, I read a, a brief uh, snippet of a piece in the New York Times by Sonia Nazario about what kids are facing there. And there, I mean, um, in El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. She returned to Honduras uh, to do some reporting um, and found that the vast majority of child migrants are fleeing not poverty, but violence. The dominance, she writes, in the past few years of foreign drug cartels in Honduras, especially ones from Mexico, has increased the reach and viciousness of the violence. One woman uh, who lives in Nueva Suapa, uh, where uh, she visited, says children began leaving en masse for the United States three years ago. That was around the time that narcos started putting serious pressure on kids to work for them. At the Nueva Zapaya's only high school, narcos recruited inside the school. Five students, mostly 12 and 13-year-olds, reported that a man had ordered them to use and distribute drugs or he would kill their parents. By March, one month into the new uh, school year, 67 of 450 students had left the school out of fear. Girls face particular dangers. Three girls recently were raped and killed in Nueva Suyapa, one only eight years old. Two 15-year-olds were abducted and raped. The kidnappers told them if they didn't get in the car, they would kill their entire families. Some parents no longer let their girls go to school for fear of their being kidnapped. Milagro Martinez, a 19-year-old girl, had been told repeatedly by narcos that she would be theirs or end up dead. Last summer, she made her first attempt to reach the U.S. Here there is only evil, she says. It's better to leave than have them kill me here. She headed north with her 21-year-old sister, a friend who had also been threatened, and $170 among them. She was stopped and deported from Mexico. Now back in Nueva Siapa, she stays locked inside her mother's house. I hope God protects me. I'm afraid to step outside. Last year, she says, six miners as young as 15 were killed in her neighborhood. Some were hacked apart. The local pastor says you never call the cops. The cops themselves will retaliate and kill you. That girl, incidentally, uh, plans to return to the United States. She will keep leaving until she gets through. This is obviously not about poverty. This is about seeking refuge.
Countries neighboring Syria, she notes, have absorbed 3 million refugees. The countries surrounding Iraq absorbed 2 million during our invasion. The idea that we can't absorb 60, 70,000 children a year is pathetic. It's pathetic. We spend $50 billion a year on one jet fighter program that has yet to literally launch. And the idea that uh, Henry Cuellar would promote a mechanism in which to essentially turn these kids through a mill and send them back to this place is just, it's just shocking. Yeah, it really should be called the... um, Speed Up Children Getting Raped and Killed Act of the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, support Save the Children's U.S. border crisis effort. Quote, rooms with concrete floors and walls packed with children, the overpowering smell of sweat and urine, guards who have to wear masks to deal with the stench, toilets with little or no privacy, no showers or beds in sight, unquote. That's the environment awaiting the thousands of children crossing the U.S. border in search of refuge, as described by Save the Children's Chief Operating Officer, Carlos Carazana. As many as 90,000 children are expected to turn themselves into U.S. Customs Border Protection as they flee their home countries into Texas. What's happening is nothing short of a humanitarian crisis. U.S. trade and drug policies have contributed to the dangerous conditions the children are fleeing. Helping them is not only the obvious right thing to do, it's the law thanks to the George W. Bush administration. But a law doesn't equal resources and government red tape is now a congressional specialty. And that's before having to deal with Governor Perry. Save the Children is a charity that specializes in domestic and international resources during humanitarian crises. They are training FEMA volunteers and transferring refugees to child-friendly, safe places in McCollin, Brownsville, and Laredo, Texas, where people are receiving life-saving medical care and nutrition. You can help by simply texting the word AID, A-I-D, to the number 20222. A $10 donation will be made through your mobile carrier to help the response effort, a donation you can feel good about because nearly 90% of Save the Children funds go directly to programming, earning them top ratings and accreditations. Hear the stories of the refugees themselves at savethechildren.org and read more about the long-term plans being implemented by the charity and its volunteers. Their advocacy is multifaceted and includes ensuring children are able to access due process and are safe while in the custody of U.S. agencies. Additional funding will support the rights of unaccompanied minors migrating to the U.S. as well as assisting those who wish to return to their country of origin. Text AID, A-I-D, to the number 20222 and spread the word that helping is just that simple.
Jose Antonio Vargas is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, a filmmaker, an activist, and an undocumented American. Vargas was detained in Texas on Tuesday, but was later released. He was there to speak about the refugee children being held at the border. Here he is in 2011 speaking about what it means to be an American. My name is Jose Antonio Vargas. I was born in the Philippines. I moved to the United States when I was 12. My mother wanted to give me a better life, um, so she sent me to live with my grandparents in Silicon Valley. I loved America the moment I got here. Embraced the language, the culture, the people. English was my second language, and I learned to speak American by watching Frasier, Home Improvement, and The Golden Girls. I won the spelling bee in eighth grade by spelling indefatigable. In high school, I fell in love with journalism. I started working for my local newspaper, the Mountain View Voice. Uh, then I got hired at the Washington Post. I covered the 2008 presidential campaign, from traveling on Hillary Clinton's plane to pheasant hunting with Huckabee. I've interviewed Al Gore for Rolling Stone and profiled Mark Zuckerberg for The New Yorker. I even won a Pulitzer Prize for covering the Virginia Tech massacre. At age 16, I rode my bike to the DMV to get my driver's permit. I brought my green card with me. The woman at the DMV flipped it around. She leaned over and she whispered, This is fake. Don't come back here again. I went home and confronted my grandfather. That was the first time I realized that I'm an undocumented immigrant. What some people call an illegal. The first person I told was Mrs. Denny, my choir teacher. After she told me that she was planning a choir trip to Japan, I told her I couldn't afford it. But she said, we'd find a way. We'd figure it out. Then I decided to tell her the truth. It's not really about the money, I said. I don't have the right passport. I'm not supposed to be here. Mrs. Denny got it. The next day, she told me the choir was going to Hawaii instead. It just mattered to me that Jose was hardworking, he was enthusiastic, he was always coming to class. And it's just, it's our job to educate them, to make them better citizens of the world. It doesn't matter what country they're from or, you know, what their background or their legal papers are. Mrs. Nettie was the very first member of my personal underground railroad, Americans who decided to help undocumented immigrants like me. Other members of my Underground Railroad include Rich Fisher, my high school superintendent, and Pat Hyland, my high school principal. For more than a decade now, Pat and Rich have been with me every step of the way, guiding me and supporting me as I've tried to define what it means to be an American. I define American as someone who works really hard 
someone who's proud to be in this country and wants to contribute to it. I'm independent. I pay taxes. I'm self-sufficient. I'm an American. I just don't have the right papers. Detroit down to Houston and New York to L.A. Pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say that I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the man who died, who gave that right to me. And I gladly stand up next to you, next to you and defender still today. Because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Wait till you get a little Fox News. Now they've got some 911 calls of uh, undocumented immigrants coming into the country and asking for help because they're in trouble. Now look at what they do with them. And they stumbled across the border illegally, and now they need your help. A small Texas town forced to answer 911 calls from stranded illegals in Spanish. Oh, in Spanish. Okay, the dude is turning purple. Let's go and make sure he doesn't die. So what does Fox News want? Do you really think we shouldn't go and help that guy? Look, do I like that people are violating the law and coming across the border? No, I think there needs to be a sensible end to that, as most Americans do, right? And it's a tough problem of what to do with the kids that have crossed the border. It is not a tough problem of whether we save that guy's life. Does Fox really want the cops just to look at him and be like, yeah, sorry, you turned purple. Oh, look at that, you died. Maybe they do. I guess they do. Because wait till you see more. Watch. All right, in a small town just 270 miles south of Houston, illegal immigrants are learning the hard way there's a deadly cost to crossing the border. Uh, just one example of the 911 calls bombarding the Brooks County Police Department. Not only are they understaffed and lacking resources, now they've got to deal with illegal immigrants who have no business being here. So those calls you have to respond to, even though, for the most part, when you get there, you realize they're not even American citizens. That's correct, but they're on U.S. soil, and uh, the due process comes into play, and that's the way we're taking a mess. Okay, wait, so uh, you're saying you shouldn't respond at all, but if he didn't respond, then you'd be like, the illegals have crossed the borders, and our sheriffs don't do anything. Okay, so he's like, look, they're on U.S. soil. What do you want me to do? He's going to tell you in a second. Here's another example of a 911 call that came into your people. 911, take your mercy. Spanish, please. Hello? Espanol. Sí. Estoy enfermo. Y ahorita ya caí aquí y no me puedo ni levantar. ¿Tienen agua y comida? No. No, no tenemos nada de agua. Señor, so sheriff, they're they're coming across the border, they haven't had a drink in three days. What do you do? You give them water for Christ's sake. These guys claim to be Christians. Is that a tough question? Look, after you give them the water, 
you detain them. You go through a process, and eventually you send them back. That's what happens when people, when you catch people who have crossed the border without documents. So when nobody's saying, hey, throw roses at their feet, but what kind of an animal would hear that call and not give them water? That they think that's an open question. Uh, we're wasting our resources on this. I can't believe we waste some water on somebody who was going to die of thirst. <laughs> They're barbarians, man. Are you really? You're proud to be on that side? I'm amazed every time. Uh, you go to sleep thinking, <laughs> got those illegals. Yeah, they died. They got purple and they went gay of thirst. And we let them starve and choke to death and... You think you're a good person? I guarantee you, most of the people on that side call themselves good Christians. What would Jesus do? Hi, this is Nathan from Boca, trying again. I'm coming to this whole issue from a very, 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 very pro-Israel background. Um, my family is Jewish. My dad's Jewish clergy and the conservative movement. And my whole family is very pro-Israel. I was on birthright, went on birthright myself back in 2012, and for the most part, absolutely loved it. And so I come from that perspective and trying to justify everything I've learned about Israel from that perspective with what's going on and that I can't justify what's going on in Gaza. I can't justify what's going on in the West Bank. I can't justify the settlements. I definitely can't justify the current incursion to Gaza. All of these excuses for it just sound like genocidal talk, really. All, everything they keep saying, you know, like, like they have this line, Israel has the right to defend itself. Well, no one's arguing that, though. No one is saying Israel doesn't have the right to defend itself. The argument is, who's the aggressor? Is Palestine the aggressor or is Israel the aggressor? And the more I look at the situation, the more it looks like Israel is the aggressor. You know, I've been listening to Citizen Radio for a little year now. I wish you had include, included some clips from them in the show because they have some great, great they talk about it a lot and do really good interviews with it. And also, um, Radio Dispatch has been bringing it up. And it's the first time I've heard about it on Radio Dispatch. Again, I wish I had done some clips from them. Um, and it's on Democracy Now!, of course, all the time. They have some great debates. And, you know, and I'm trying to listen to that side, that pro-Palestinian side, as a way to listen to the other side, as someone whom I love, respect, love dearly, used to tell me I need to do, is always listen to the other side. And the more I listen, the harder it is to justify what Israel's doing. And that's coming from a background of being pro-Israel. I love Israel, and I'm saying this when I love Israel probably more than I love the United States. But it's becoming very hard and very heartbreaking to continue to see the news out of the Middle East and see what Israel is doing. They don't look like they're on the defensive anymore if they have a war. They look like they're on the offensive. They don't look like they're just trying to defend themselves. They look like they are attacking and provoking 
the Palestinians and even attempting to wipe them out. And that's my pers- becoming my perspective. And it's hard, too, because I can't talk about that with my family because my family is so pro-Israel. They do scream Israel has a right to defend itself. And and, and they will look at Hamas's charter, the anti-Israel, despite the fact that Hamas has publicly distanced themselves from their own charter. You know, at least their current leader has. And, and I mean, it'd be nice if they would perhaps consider rewriting their charter to remove some of the anti-Jewish bigotry within it. But... At the same time, they still do not look like the aggressors in this. So even even allowing for the fact that, yeah, there's some anti-Jewish bigotry there, it's still, they don't look like the aggressors. They look like they're just trying to survive an onslaught from a power way above their own. And that's the other thing, too. It's like, this isn't equal. Israel is instantly more powerful than pretty much all of their enemies surrounding them. Israel is so powerful. And so why they feel the need to continually be aggressive bullies almost, I don't know. And again, I say this coming from a pro-Israel background. I need to keep saying that because I know I'm going to be called out as a Jew hater. And, and I am Jewish. Well, atheist, but I am Jewish and so on. But I'm not. And I don't hate Israel. I love Israel, and I want Israel to exist. I want Palestine to exist as well, but I want Israel to exist. But this does not look like Israel's defending itself. And so I'm, I'm split, and I, you know, I'm losing any sense of what to think about any of this. It's becoming harder and harder to be pro-Israel, I guess. So thanks for the good work. Have a good day. It's Sarah from Boston. I thought you started saying that was a very good show about uh, the Israeli incursion in Gaza. I thought it was very well-researched and, and well-thought-out. Um, for most of my life, I lived in an area that does not take criticism of Israel lightly. Going out to the streets to criticize Israel is far more inflammatory than going out to criticize the United States. So for a long time, I never knew anything about the conflict, or uh, more specifically about the occupation and the horrible conditions faced by Palestinians. But uh, I also want to touch on uh, something that you played, I think, in the voicemail, or like what would have been the voicemail segment. Um, I think that's really disingenuous to say, um, as I think David Packman uh, alluded to, like, well, you care about this, but you don't care about it, uh, you don't care about this other similar thing quite as much. Um, I think that's sort of delegitimizing activism, uh, and it implies that because you don't care about X, and, uh, because, excuse me, because you care a lot about X, you don't care enough about why, which isn't necessarily true. Um, and I think that to, I think there's a really below-the-belt argument that if you can't be involved with everything and care about it all the same amount, um, then you have to be involved with nothing because you don't care enough. In the past eight months or so, I've gotten very heavily involved with my school's uh, SJP, that is Students for Justice in Palestine. Um, after I was shown what was happening in Gaza, they said I didn't really know anything about it uh, until fairly recently. Um, given all the bad things happening in the world, I too have wondered why exactly I've become so passionately uh, involved in this, while other issues of equal imperity and importance aren't uh, groups that I'm involved in as much. Um, my first attempt at the answer uh, to that was simply that it was easy. Uh, there were protests for solidarity all across Boston, so I was able to stay actively involved. Um, however, as my involvement matured and developed, I began to understand the U.S.'s complicity in the occupation that you touched on at the end. It seems that in U.S. society, Israel is largely absolved of meeting international protocol, and we turn a blind eye and sort of uh, force the rest of the world to, in effect, 
I think that's wrong. And so I'll take to the streets with others to make that statement if our government won't. Uh, the goal of the BDS movement, that is Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, is uh, that we were called on by the Palestinians to divest, uh, boycott, and sanction Israel until they change their policies. I think the BDS is a campaign that people, including myself and best of the left listeners, uh, can be involved in uh, in solidarity with the Palestinians um, and we as activists should take up. Um, so I think that's what it's about. That the U.S. is complicit in the occupation and that if we change the situation here, we can actually change the situation there too. Uh, so I very much appreciate your attempt to figure this out. It was a very good episode, as I said. Uh, but there is one last thing I want to say in response to Cenk from Young Turks. I don't support violence in the situation, but I think that history has shown that uh, nonviolent Palestinian resistance, which is indeed most of it, I would ask you to remember the BDS campaign, is largely overlooked. Uh, this is something that's happening very far away from where we live and that we can comfortably ignore and will. Um, violent resistance means that Palestinians themselves will be blamed for their own situation. So rather than demand that Palestinian resistance meet certain standards to make us more comfortable supporting them, I think that we need to stand in solidarity with the oppressed regardless, uh, in this case, of how Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So many of you will remember just in the previous episode, the Israel Gaza episode that the voicemails have been responding to. I played a clip at the very end and, and had a little discussion about a question that David Pakman had had and he had posed on his show, and the essence of of which was, you know, he was asking why are you know American progressives seemingly uh, you know so much more focused on the issue of Israel than with other sort of similar issues around the world? I answered that by saying that well, the fact that the U.S. has this sort of strange, uh, special relationship with Israel is sort of the crux of it, that because as an American, we feel so much more attached to what Israel does through the, the support of our government by way of funding, by way of, you know, political favors, and by way of our media, that you know, we feel more attached to the actions happening between uh, Israel and Palestine than, you know, say, Tibet, for instance. So I, I sent him a message letting him know that I had posted this segment and you know, so he could check it out and then give me his thoughts. And it turns out, he, you know, he said, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. I, you know, I, I hear that argument all the time and I find it unsatisfying. And so through a, a sort of a long exchange, the basic conclusion of that was, He's dissatisfied with it because he found, you know, he finds it maybe illogical. And my conclusion was, right. Like, have you met humans? Like, this, this is what we do. We don't think everything through perfectly logically. We react to what's in front of us. And it turns out we just got a voicemail that we just listened to that was very much along those lines. You know, Sarah was saying that at least part of the reason why she was uh, involved in the you know in the you know activism to support Palestine was because there was activism available for her to plug into so a perfect example of how our external 
uh, surroundings and, and circumstances help guide the path that we're on and, and the paths we choose to take, you know? So, so that was part of it. And so I basically pointed out like, all right, so, you know, so you know this, uh, he, he wasn't confused. Like David's a really, really smart guy. And so like, he knows that people sort of react to what's in front of them. And, you know, he's not confused about any of that. So I'm like, all right, great. So you're just asking the wrong question then. So what he's frustrated with, he explained was that, you know, people, you know, have these really strong feelings about Israel and Palestine, but they don't know their history. And I said, okay, well, great. Then that's actually the question you should be asking, not why are people so obsessed with this and not with that. It's why don't people know their history? But of course, that's a question with a really obvious answer, so it's not really worth asking. So the solution then is maybe you should just talk about the history more often. And his response was interesting. He said that, you know, he's tried that in the past and he, he's kind of come to the conclusion that it doesn't matter because when he tries to talk about the history, uh, A, it increases the amount of hate mail that he gets and B, you know, people just think he's lying or something. And I thought, well, I mean, okay, I get like, that sucks, but you basically have a choice to make. Like you can either give your opinions without historical context as he is, or you can give your opinions with historical context and let the reactions be whatever they are. Personally, I would love to hear more historic, uh, historical context. I didn't mention this to him, but like when I'm listening for clips to put into the show, uh, nice, concise monologues about historical context of current day issues are like, they go way to the top of the list of clips that I'm likely to promote. And I mean, I didn't mention it cause that's not, I'm not trying to like entice him to do it by saying I'll promote his stuff, but I'm saying like, that's, I, I find that to be really valuable. So he said, you know, I'll think about it. And it's definitely something to think about. So maybe we can uh, look forward to hearing some more, uh, you know, history of Israel, Palestine conflict context from David Packham in the future. Uh, and, you know, I would love to hear that from, anyone. But that's about it. That's how the, how the conversation more or less ended. I just thought uh, you'd be interested to hear sort of the update on, uh, you know, what, what transpired after the previous episode. Please get, keep comments coming in either on the Israel-Gaza issue, uh, refugees on the border, anything else you want to talk about. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com and it's a cry and shame how we get so trained